good to see you this beautiful Sunday morning. And uh, just a little heads up, as Pastor Dave was mentioning, uh, got quite a wonderful schedule this year to travel and uh, speak on the issue of prophecy. And uh, that will begin this coming weekend. Myself, Amir Sarfati, Pastor Jack Hibbs, and Jan Markell are going to be in Toronto uh, doing an Awaiting His Return conference. I will not be able to make it back for next Sunday, but Pastor Mike McIntosh is going to be here sharing with you. And I know that will always be a blessing and insightful. And then the following weekend, Amir and I will be in Denver. I am flying home Saturday night. I will be here on Sunday morning. And then we've got really what Pastor Dave was mentioning, the places where we're going, where the church isn't strong, where the number of believers are few. And uh, we're going to be in Perth, Australia, then Melbourne, Australia, and then Auckland, New Zealand, uh, doing some conferences at the uh, midpoint of July and on into August. So we would appreciate your prayers uh, for those things. And a little bit of an update this morning. Uh, about 6 o'clock this morning, I was just following some of the stories of what's been developing in Israel. And uh, Terry had shared with me something interesting that happened last night. Our three-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter was up and down, up and down all night until finally about two in the morning, my daughter says to her, what's going on, honey? Are you having bad dreams? And she said, mommy, there's a storm coming and we need to pray. And they prayed and she slept the rest of the night. But what I wanted to talk to you about this morning is what has been going on in Israel is just simply unbelievable, and it is beginning to escalate or continuing to escalate. And this has stirred me to continue the series that we started in our uh, break from the book of Acts. We're going to talk more about prophecy this morning, and then I'm going to do a final message just Wednesday night. This morning, it's a message I've done at several prophecy conferences, and it's about the war of Ezekiel. And that, I believe, is right at the door and potentially uh, going to happen soon. And then Wednesday night, we're going to talk about the 70th week of Daniel, or the day or time of Jacob's trouble. And maybe we'll stop there. I keep telling you we're going to do 1 Samuel 20. I've been telling you that for like a month, and someday we'll get there. And uh, when I get back uh, from Toronto and Denver, we are going to look at our PowerPoint verse through Psalm 24 uh, when I return. The message is actually ready, and I actually sent all the PowerPoint stuff last night to the uh, sound booth, but then this morning the old switcheroo happened, and uh, we'll just stick with what God wants to do and not what I want to do. Amen? In the last 24 hours, over 450 rockets have been fired into Israel, or during a 24-hour period. The number now has exceeded some 500 rockets fired from the Gaza Strip into Israel. 131 people have been hospitalized. 60 people have received light injuries. Three people are seriously injured. Three people are gravely injured. And three people are dead from this onslaught of rocket fire coming in from the Gaza Strip. Now, this morning, as I said, we're going to be looking at the war of Ezekiel. And I do believe that all these things are uh, potentially things that could light the powder or the fuse to the powder keg we call the Middle East. Now, we're going to look at three different portions of Ezekiel. So if you would open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 37, and we will begin our time there. Now, the war of Ezekiel is a frequent topic in our day, and rightfully so, because the events concerning the war are falling into place in an undeniable fashion. And yet, as is true with all unfulfilled prophecy, there are a myriad of interpretations and interpreters regarding the events that were written of some 2,500 years ago. Now, before we jump in, I want to establish something I've established in previous messages concerning unfulfilled prophecy. And it's based on something that was told to Daniel in Daniel 12, verse 4, where Daniel was told to shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And then many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Now, we have noted there's been an exponential increase in general knowledge, technological knowledge in these last days. But the knowledge that is in view here in Daniel is knowledge regarding the visions that he had received during the Babylonian captivity. 
Daniel was told that the words of the vision were shut up to him and reserved for a future generation. Now that tells us that the generation to whom those words are not shut up or have become clear is the generation that is being written about. And I submit to you this morning, we are that generation. Amen. Now, the Hebrew word shut up means to, not as we would say shut up to somebody, but it means to be kept secret or hidden. In other words, Daniel was writing about things he didn't fully understand. Some were things that he could calculate and speculate about, but there were things that were just flat closed off to him that are only going to be visible to the generation that is going to see the whole of their fulfillment. Now, with that in mind, I want to give you two rules of biblical prophecy interpretation that we need to keep in mind whenever we look at subjects where scholars disagree. Now, the two things are this. The first is a majority opinion does not ensure accurate interpretation. A majority opinion does not ensure accurate interpretation. Just because a whole bunch of people believe it, a whole bunch of people say it, doesn't mean it's so. And then also from Daniel 12.4, we need to recognize that greater prophetic clarity in the last days is to be expected, not rejected. Greater prophetic clarity in the last days is to be expected, not rejected. The things that were shut up to Daniel are now clear to you and I. Now, let me give you an example of our first rule of interpretation regarding majority of opinion. The majority of the church today, and I would even add the vast majority of the church today, believes that the church has replaced the nation of Israel due to Israel's national rejection of their Messiah. And let me say this, the majority of the church is wrong. God is not finished with the nation of Israel. Here's how we know. Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37 says, thus says the Lord, who's speaking? The Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of armies is his name or host. If those ordinances depart from me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel or the descendants of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will cast off all the seed of Israel, we might say descendants of Jacob, for all that they have done, says who? Says the Lord. Listen, the ordinances established at creation, the sun ruling the day, the lesser light, the moon uh, guarding the night skies, the actions of the seas, the boundaries that have been preset by God since the beginning, all continue today. Thus, the Lord has not cast off the nation of Israel. The church has not replaced the nation of Israel in God's prophetic plan. So the majority opinion has not assured us of accurate interpretation concerning the modern state of Israel. Now, we could look at prophecy as two people looking at the same picture. One is standing 100 feet away and the other is standing one foot away. Who's going to see more detail? Well, the one closer to the picture, obviously, and we are closer to the picture of the last day's scenario very clearly, as we'll see this morning. Now... The last of Daniel's visions pertain to the same seven-year period or time frame as those of the War of Ezekiel. And the fact that we can see with better clarity the details of Ezekiel's prophecy means that we can also assume that we have better understanding of the events recorded by Daniel. Now, regarding the Ezekiel scenario, there are several major questions that all people ask. Who are the players? In the Ezekiel War, we have ancient names that are used to describe geographic places on the face of the planet. The big question that everybody wants to know is when is it going to take place, since it's clearly a prophesied war that is yet in the future. Now, our efforts this morning are going to be to identify what we can know for sure. And we'll make a couple of speculations as well and throw our hat in the ring on a couple of interpretive issues, but... What we want to do this morning is understand that there are things that are hard and fast that we can know for sure that tell us where we are in the prophetic chronology that previous generations couldn't see. So are you ready this morning? 
Bow your heads with me, please. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. And Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to examine these things, even as we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray that you would protect and guard the people of Israel, your chosen people, by birth, God. And that as they are back in the land fulfilling your word, that you would have your hand above and over and under uh, them, Lord, and that it wouldn't be the Iron Dome that's just protecting them. It would be your righteous right hand. So, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to get clarity on something that we can now clearly see. So speak to our hearts and give us ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for those who may be unfamiliar with what's happening in Ezekiel, we need to set things up a bit. And what we can understand is that the prophet Ezekiel was shown a valley of bones. The bones were examined. They were found to be in a condition that was very dry. Now, this is symbolic in and of itself that indicates a length of time where the bones had been exposed to the elements, which would be figuratively speaking of the scattering of the people of Israel into the nations around the world for an extended period of time. And that time period lasted nearly two millennia. Now, the Lord asked Ezekiel, can these bones live? To which, very wisely, Ezekiel replied, you know, Lord. And the Lord told Ezekiel, prophesy to the dry bones to hear the word of the Lord. Now, here's the prophecy of Ezekiel. And I'm going to ask you, as we always do, to stand and read together at least our opening verses from Ezekiel 37. And we'll read verses 5 through 14. Here is what the Lord told Ezekiel initially to prophesy to the bones. Verse 5. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered over them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. Then I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and performed it says the Lord. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the emphasis on Israel and the land is clear here. And let me just say something because we have the fake news, and I love how Amir Sarfati refers to the media today. He calls them the Medianites. And indeed, they are uh, quite a group of Uh, misinformation purveyors. And the truth is, there's no such thing as occupied territories in the way the term is used today in regard to Israel. Israel is in a land that God had given them by everlasting covenant. As we mentioned in previous messages, there's no such thing as a Palestinian. Uh, Those people are Arabs, most of them Syrian Arabs that like to call themselves Palestinians. And this is an easy, easily uh, provable fact. If you want to talk about Palestinians being an ancient people, then ask what the names are of some of their ancient architects. What is the style of their architecture? What kind of coinage did they exchange? Who were some of their authors and poets from days gone by? And the answer would be, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, because there's no such thing as ancient Palestinians. Now, this is the land of Israel. It is a land God gave them as their eternal homeland and the eternal capital of Israel 
is Jerusalem. Now, we also need to note something here in that there is an incremental progression that is pictured in the rebirth of the nation of Israel. First, the dry bones came together. Then the sinews and flesh came upon them and then skin and then breath. Now, this tells us that the progression or series of events were going to lead up to the rebirth of a nation in but a single day. And time won't allow us to cover all of these things. But when we do note that in 1892, when the aliyahs or the returns began to the nation of Israel, that from 1892 on up into the 1940s, there were a lot of things that happened that were leading up to the rebirth of the nation, beginning with the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, the Balfour Declaration written in 1917, the San Remo Resolution in 19. 29, Hitler and his Nazis, many other components happened during this 50 plus year period that were bringing the dry bones back together, that were putting the sinew and flesh on the nation of Israel. And finally, breath came into the long dead nation on May 14, 1948. And Israel is a nation once again today. Now, Ezekiel 37, 21 to 23 The Lord says, then say to them, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into, next three words, their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. They shall, then they shall be my people and I will be their God. Now listen, Amos adds this in Amos 9, 14 to 15, where the Lord said, I will bring back the captives of who? My people, Israel, they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in whose land? Their land. And no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I had given them, says who? The Lord your God. Now, The rights to the land, the boundaries of Israel continue to be a hot topic today, even within the church. But let me just say this. Here's one thing that we know for sure that cannot be disputed and is beyond debate. Listen this morning. The rebirth of the nation of Israel initiated an unstoppable sequence of prophetic events. The rebirth of the nation of Israel initiated an unstoppable sequence of prophetic events. Now, consider this in light of what we have read thus far from Ezekiel 37. On May 14, 1948, there were 650,000 Jews living in Israel. Today, there are over 6 million. The land of dry bones is now teeming with life. And in Ezekiel 36, 30, the Lord said, and I will multiply the fruit of your trees and increase your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. The Lord said he's going to multiply their fruit. The Lord said he's going to increase the crop of the field. And today, Israel is one of the leading fresh producers of citrus products and exporters of them as well. Isaiah 35, 1 said, The wilderness and wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as a rose. Israel is the 10th largest exporter in the world of cut flowers, adding $200 million a year to their national economy. Their second largest exported flower is, interestingly, the rose. Now, the reason we need to highlight this is because the geography of Israel is not naturally conducive to agriculture. More than half the land area is desert. Their climate and lack of water resources don't favor farming. Only 20% of the land of Israel is arable, meaning suitable for plowing and farming. 
Many of you have probably heard that Mark Twain in 1867 visited the land of Israel and he published his impressions in a book called Innocence Abroad. He described Israel as a desolate country. He said it's devoid of both vegetation and human population. He said it's a desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but is given over wholly to weeds. It's a silent, mournful expanse. It's a desolation. We never saw a human being on the whole route. Hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive tree and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country, end quote. Listen, I have been to Israel, and that is nowhere near the description of that land today. It is a beautiful country. It is a lush country. It is rich with vegetation. And it isn't home to just jackals and wild beasts and few of them. Listen, it's a land that is teeming with life because God said, I'm going to make it such a land, and he has fulfilled his word. Now, this is why it is important for us to include chapter 37 in our understanding of it being a precursor to the war of Israel. Now, I want to make note, as we did last week, um, in uh, concerning Revelation 16 through 18, coming before chapter 19, so too, Revelation or uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 come after chapter 37. In other words, there is a sequence, as we mentioned, that is initiated. Now, that means with chapter 7 being fulfilled, we should, or at least in the process of being fulfilled, some believe that all the Jews have to be inside the promised land, which is something I would not agree with. It's the nation uh, in and of itself that needs to be reborn, and many of the Jews coming from around the world back to it. But the fact is, there are things we ought to be looking for now, since we've seen the rebirth of the nation. Now, that land, according to Ezekiel 37, includes the mountains of Israel, which includes the Golan Heights. East Jerusalem, where the most most important mountain in the world stands, and that is Mount Zion. And with Israel now reborn as a nation, in possession of the mountains of Israel, both the Golan and uh, obviously Judea and Samaria, or what they call the West Bank today, and the people who are populating the area are largely Jewish, or there are uh, some two million Arab Israelis that live in the land as well. Therefore, we should be looking toward an understanding of the events in the next couple of chapters. So let's look at chapter 38 for a moment, if you want to flip over to the right just a bit. And let's read verses 1 through 6 and see if we can see this developing in our world today. Ezekiel 38, 1 to 6 says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togarma, from the far north, and all its troops, many people are with you. Now, the dry bones vision of 37 interprets itself. And chapter 38 is where the interpretations begin to broaden, and there is much debate as to who represents who. So again, our purpose is to identify what we can know for sure. Now, the first thing we need to establish is that with the exception of two of the names we just read, all of them are found in the table of nations in Genesis 10, where the descendants of Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, are listed. Now, the two names you're not going to find in the table of nations or in Genesis 10 is Gog and Rosh. So we need to investigate them a bit to come to a better understanding. Now, remember what we noted when we began. New interpretations are to be expected, not rejected, because there is better prophetic clarity the closer you get to the picture unfolding. Now, again, I want to present something to you as a possibility. And it is, I think, a pretty decent possibility. And it's interesting to say the least. But let me first show you who the majority of prophetic interpreters see the modern nations represented by these ancient names. Now, there's some that uh, debate this list, and much of the research done by modern Bible 
uh, interpreters is based on the information presented by a historian named Herodotus. And uh, this is where this information, at least in part, comes from. But I borrowed a, a, a picture, if you will, from Dr. March Hitchcock, who has done some wonderful research on the subject. Now, he gives the ancient and modern names of those listed in this scenario introduced in Ezekiel 38, 1 through 6. Rosh, he says, is Russia, if you can put the chart up there. Magog, he believes to be Central Asia and possibly Afghanistan. Meshach is Turkey. Tubal is Turkey. Persia is Iran. Ethiopia, or in some translations would render that Kush, is Sudan. Libya, often referred to as Put, is Libya. Gomer is Turkey. Beth Togarma, remember, we were told they come from the far north. Beth Togarma is also Turkey. Now, who's missing there? Gog and Rosh. Even though Gog is, uh, well, not Rosh, I'm sorry, just Gog. I want to say a couple things about Rosh in a moment. Now, uh, Gog is not listed here, but it's almost universally agreed that Gog is a person or some kind of personage or perhaps even a title. Now, we have Ethiopia listed here in our translation, but what we need to understand is that in ancient uh, geography, Ethiopia just simply meant the nations south of Egypt or on the southern border of Egypt in the northern part of Africa. has nothing to do or has no correlation with the modern country of Ethiopia in that sense. It's referring to the Sudan. Now, Magog has been considered by many to refer to Russia. And I've actually had people get mad at me because I say I don't believe in C.I. Schofield's interpretation about Magog that he published in his reference Bible back in 1909. Yet many today believe that Magog represents Russia. Now, geographically, Russia, or Magog rather, the son of Japheth and the grandson of Noah, is identified as the mountainous region between Cappadocia and Media. Or in other words, in portions of Asia Minor. The Asia Minor we find reference to in the book of Revelation. There are seven churches there in Asia Minor, and all of them are located within the boundaries of Turkey. Now, geographically, the region of the world settled by Magog doesn't line up with Magog being Russia. So if Magog represents a portion of Asia Minor, Persia or Iraq, or at least somewhere in that region, then Rosh, some argue, must represent Russia. And Dr. Hitchcock gives some ancient names in various uh, secular literatures and uh, historical writings that have a similar sound of Rashu, Rasapu, Ras, or Rus. And thus he makes the correlation between basically uh, the spelling and the sound of these names uh, to give evidence that Rosh is representative of Russia as the nations I just named are in that geographic region. Now, interesting that there are those who debate the issue regarding Rosh. Gog, some type of principal player, the head, if you will, of this coalition. Now, Rosh is debated as to whether it's either a proper name or actually a noun. Now, we're all familiar with the Jewish holidays or the feast days, and there is one that takes place in the fall that's known as the head of the year. We call it what? Rosh Hashanah. Rosh means head. It can mean chief also. And therefore, like Rosh Hashanah means the head of the year, Rosh not being listed in the table of nations gives us reason to uh, investigate this a bit further. So now I'm going to throw something out there just to stir up our minds and stir the mental interpretive pot just a bit. Now, listen closely this morning. Amos 7.1 says, Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, He formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowings. Now, of course, that fits perfectly into what we're talking about. (laughs) Now, there's something interesting here about Amos 7.1. There is a translation of scripture from Hebrew into Greek, translated by a group known as the Seventy. And its translation is called, or their translation is called, the Septuagint. Now listen to this. Listen to what the Septuagint says about the locusts mentioned there uh, in Amos 7.1. The Septuagint says, Thus the Lord God has showed me, 
And behold, a swarm of locusts coming from the east. And behold, one caterpillar. What's his name? King Gog. Now, it's interesting that uh, caterpillar has also been translated as devastating locusts with God as their, Gog as their king. Now, here's something interesting if we consider about this. Proverbs 30, 27 says, The locusts have no king, yet they advance in ranks. In other words, there's none who are head over, who is head over the locusts, like we've seen major locust infestations in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait over the past week. And they have no king, yet they advance in ranks. But there's something interesting about the usage by a prophet of the term locust and the translation of God. If we move ahead into Revelation 9, 7 through 11, we're told the shape, shape of the what? The locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns or something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like the lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running in the battle. They had tails like scorpions, and their stings, there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months, and they had as a what? A king over them. Now remember, these are locusts. Locust king, just like Amos 7, 1 from the Septuagint. And they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek his name is Apollyon, and that means in either language, the destroyer. Now, locusts, as it relates to grasshopper-like inflects, fly in ranks but have no king. The locust-like horses of Revelation do have a king, and he is the king of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew or Greek means destroyer. Now, in Daniel, you guys still here? All right, in Daniel 10, 12 to 13, Daniel was told, Do not fear, Daniel, for for the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God. Your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But... The prince of the, per, of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now again, the word prince here means head person or ruler. Now thus Daniel clearly reveals to us that there are fallen angels who within the rank and file of principalities and powers have been assigned Two nations to harass, mislead, hinder, or hamper the people of God by their deceptions, much like the modern day nation of Iran called Persia in the Old Testament scripture. So here is what is offered as a solution to the debate of Gog, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. If we were to read this directly from the Septuagint, the Greek text, and assume that Rosh is a, uh, a noun and not a proper name, Ezekiel 38 would say, Now the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, ruler head of Meshach and Tubal. As a matter of fact, this used to be how this uh, passage was translated. If you read from the King Jimmy or the old King James, Ezekiel 38, 1 and 2 actually says, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog. Again, Magog is not Russia. The chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Who are Meshach and Tubal? Meshach and Tubal are modern day Turkey, that's the geographic region, those descendants of Noah settled in, as well as Gomer and Bethogarma. And say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Now, let's add this so we can be thoroughly confused. Revelation 20, 7 and 8 says, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number 
is as the sand of the sea. Now, some interpreters believe that Gog and Magog is simply a representative phrase of the enemies of Israel in any particular season of history. They would be referred to in this manner. Magog representing the peoples or people groups. Gog, the one who is leading the charge against Israel. It's a lot like people today use the term Armageddon to describe something catastrophic that is happening on the earth. After all, some years ago, remember they closed the 405 and the Sepulveda Path and they called it Carmageddon. And it's just simply a reference to something in the Bible that describes a great catastrophe. Now, some argue that this is the same phrase or why this same phrase is mentioned at the end of the millennium is because like Daniel said in Daniel 10, that Gog is actually a fallen angel who is leading these nations into the invasion of Israel. There are forces influenced by Gog, a fallen angel who is the head of the locust. Uh, and during this battle, the King James tells us that five, six of the armies that invade Israel are going to be destroyed. Now, as I said, this being, this demonic being, would be assigned to much like there were the princes of Persia, would be assigned to this particular region of the world. Now, thus he could be present at the end of the millennium and the beginning, since angels are also uh, uh, beings that are not going to die, but will be cast away into everlasting judgment with all unbelievers. So, if neither Rosh or Magog represents Russia, Maybe Russia is not part of the Ezekiel scenario at all. And again, I'm quite surprised sometimes when you offer something that's outside the box of the uh, major interpretive crowd, how many people get aggravated with this. But I tell you one thing, things can change overnight in the political climate around the world. And it's happened time and time again. Did our world change on September 11, 2001? The whole world changed in just one day. So things can shift around. It could be that Russia, Dr. Hitchcock is right, it could be that Russia is leading the charge, and they are certainly involved, and they certainly have a presence on the northern border of Israel. But it's also true that Russia has been pulling back on some of their involvement in Syria and allowing Israel some leeway in the activities within Syria, dealing with the Iranian presence and the Hezbollah presence in Syria, and even using Lebanese airspace in which to attack these strongholds and airports and storage bunkers of weapons inside Syria. Israel recently shared with Russia some intel that allowed the Russians to thwart an attack that was believed to be on the level potentially of September 11th here in our own country. And Putin told Netanyahu that Russia is indebted to Israel for this. Now, with all that said, is Magog Russia? Is Rosh Russia? Is Rosh a proper name? Is Rosh a title? Is Gog a fallen angel to gathering, uh, gathering Middle East and North African nations to harass and eventually attack Israel? Well, those are all issues and matters of debate. But here's what we do know for sure. The invading nations of Ezekiel's prophecy are allied together and preparing for war. We know this for sure. The invading nations of Ezekiel's prophecy are allied together and preparing for war. They're back in the land, as chapter 37 says, and these nations are now aligned together and preparing to invade Israel. Now, the interesting thing about this is there's one kind of odd man out in this collective group that's going to invade Israel, and that is Russia. Because the fact is, every other nation that is named... Turkey, Persia, Sudan, and Libya all share one particular feature. And what is that? They're all Muslim. Russia is not a Muslim nation. So it is kind of the odd man out. So again, kind of uh, opening the door at least for thought uh, into our interpretation. But the fact is, all of these nations are united by one thing. They hate Israel and they want to see its destruction. Now... One last little tidbit, and we'll move on. 
We're also told in Ezekiel 38 and verse 13 that Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish with all their young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, and to take great plunder? So Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish are asking the invading forces, what is the motivation of this attack? Is it economic? Have you come to relieve your own economic stresses? And this is something we need to recognize today. Besides the fact that Turkey, Iran, Libya, and the Sudan all share the same religious ideology, they also share internal turmoil. They also share that they all are facing a revolution of their people against the government at this time, and they are all in economic distress. And therefore, Shiva and Dedan, the protesting nations, are interesting in that they are representative of a very well-known nation today that our own country has a relationship with, and they are the Arab Gulf states, specifically Saudi Arabia. Now, it is interesting that Saudi Arabia has just this past week offered to Fatah, to Mahmoud Abbas, $10 billion if they will accept the peace plan the deal of the century offered by our own president. Mahmoud Abbas was offered $10 billion, a billion dollars a year for the next 10 years if they will accept the peace plan. And as it's been said, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu may have coined the phrase, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And he indeed missed the opportunity and turned down this uh, offer. But the fact is, Sheba and Dedan are going to be the protesting nations of this invading force into Israel, led by either Russia or Turkey, but Turkey certainly uh, being heavily involved in anti-Israel today. Now, Tarshish is actually named within the uh, descendants of Noah in Genesis 10:4. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Ketim, uh, Dodanim. Now, there are many interpretations as to who. Tarshish is or where they settled. And some say Tarshish is one of the wise men close to King Hazarish of Persia. Or some say it's just a city in the Phoenician distant from Israel. Some say it's off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea where Prophet Jonah was trying to flee. Some say it's perhaps in Cyprus or Spain. Now, here's one another interesting a belief concerning the city of Tarsus, and some say it's actually a figure of speech. It is simply a phrase used to describe the farthest known point in the world at that time from Israel. It would be likened unto someone saying today, well, they live out in Timbuktu. Well, they don't actually live in Timbuktu, but it's describing a place that is a long way away. So, who and where is Tarsus? Well, like the rest of the names from the Table of Nations, it does represent a geographic area of the world but, again, there's much debate on that. Who and where is Sheba and Dedan? Well, some of the uh, Arab Gulf states, seven of them, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Kuwait, and the UAE, currently occupy this geographic region. And these nations have recently, though covertly, interacted with Israel, largely because they have a shared animosity for the Iranians. These nations are Sunni Muslim. Iran and uh Turkey, although Turkey is uh, far more divided than Iran, Iran is largely Shia Muslim. Now, Shia Muslim uh, Muslims have their own eschatology. They do believe they are to usher in the return of the 12th Mahdi, or the 12th Imam, the Mahdi he is referred to as. And the only reason that he can come back is to uh, bring to an end an apocalyptic scenario that has developed. And Iran believes that they have the responsibility to create an apocalypse so the 12th Imam can again return. So their motivation is according to the book that they follow. Now, the point is, is that as with the invading forces, so too the countries prophesied to protest the invasion. They're actually working with Israel and forming an alliance together with them at this point in time. So a lot of other things we could talk about, but let's wrap things up by a quick look at Ezekiel 39, 1 through 8. Now, and you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. 
And I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north. Now, we might think you always come down from the north, but listen, you always go up to Jerusalem. I will bring you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. Isn't it interesting that the Palestinians have said something is happening there. God is guiding our rockets and they're not hitting anything. And here we have the Lord just slapping their instruments of war out of the sky, so to speak, or out of their hand. And then he says, you shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beals of the field to the devo- to be devoured. You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. And I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel, And remember, the Holy One in Israel is a Messianic title. It is coming and it shall be done, says the Lord. This is the day of which I have spoken. Now, the chapter goes on to tell us that they will burn the weapons of the invading armies for seven years. And for seven months, they'll be burying the dead. And the birds and beasts are going to feast on the carnage. And then we read this. 25 to 29 of 39 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous for my holy name after they have borne their shame and their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me when they dwelt safely in their own land and no one made them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of the enemy's lands and I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back into whose land? Their land and left none of them captive any any longer. And I will not hide my face from them anymore, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God, after the Lord destroys the invaders of Israel. From that day forward, Israel will know he is the Lord their God. God is not done with the nation of Israel. Zechariah 12.10 then adds this, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now, we know without question what Zechariah records happens during the tribulation. Zechariah 12 to 14 are all about the 70th week of Daniel. Part of it about the great and terrible day of the Lord, where the Lord fights as he fights in that day against all the nations that gathered against Jerusalem. Jerusalem being an idiom for the whole of the land and people of Israel. Now, this combined with the cataclysmic wrath of God that is displayed against the invading armies which is something that is limited and specific to the 70th week of Daniel, this places in my mind the war of Ezekiel inside the tribulation period. I believe the war of Ezekiel because God is going to fight as he fights in that day as Zechariah foretold in chapter 14 by an earthquake hailstones of blood mingled with fire. That's how he's going to destroy the invading armies. Is it going to be empowering natural forces, enabling the efforts of the IAF and the IDF against their invading adversaries? The one who is going to end the Ezekiel war is God with his cataclysmic wrath poured out on these invading forces. Now, this is most likely What leads the Antichrist to rise to power? Now think about this. These nations, Muslim, invade Israel. God acts on Israel's behalf and wipes these nations out, destroying basically radical Islam as a whole. And then Israel says, hey, we'd like to build our temple. What do you think the world is going to say after God just wiped out everybody that fought against Israel? I think the world is going to say, great idea. 
let's get that thing built as fast as we can. Now, especially if the invading forces were from Muslim nations, I don't think there's going to be a lot of resistance to this request, even from the Arab states, or at least what's left of them. Now, with all that said, let's draw this last conclusion. And here, where we, here's where we've been going all morning. Are you ready? If the Ezekiel war is on the horizon, Jesus must be coming soon. If the war of Ezekiel is on the horizon, Jesus must be coming soon. If the rebirth of the nation of Israel initiated a sequence of unstoppable and irreversible prophetic events, if the participants of the Ezekiel war are allied together, preparing for war, positioning themselves in the places the Bible said they would, and launch their invasion from the north, if the protesting nations to the invasion are cooperating together and working with Israel, even if it's because of a shared animosity with Iran or towards Iran, the evidence also seems to indicate the war happens inside the tribulation period. There's no other conclusion we can reach than Jesus is coming for his church soon. Somebody say amen. Now, again, we have to understand, I believe, and there's so much debate, ridiculous debate about the tribulation period. The whole tribulation is God's wrath. It isn't just the wrath of God in the second half. The whole seven years is God's wrath. The first half is the consequential wrath of God where man has been left to his own devices and he is going to reap what he has sown. And then the cataclysmic wrath of God is displayed in the second half of the tribulation of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, listen, I don't buy the mid-trib or pre-wrath or post-trib positions because God did not appoint us to wrath and it's all the wrath of God during the seven years that means before the tribulation we out of here after all Revelation 6 17 says for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand yet we're told to do all to stand and therefore no one is going to be able to stand against the wrath of God in Revelation chapter 6. No matter who Rosh is or Gog is, no matter where Tarshish is or who it represents or the region of the world that it's representative of, the fact is the time of wrath that comes upon the whole world is a time that the church does not have an appointment with. So let me say it again in conclusion. In light of all this, Jesus must be coming soon. Therefore... He said, you also be ready. I hope you're ready this morning. Because listen, there's no time to get ready when this whole transition takes place in a moment and the twinkling of an eye. Listen, all these things are happening that have been prophesied by Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos. And they're all going down. And even like what was written in Daniel, because of our proximity to the events and their fulfillment, we can see them a lot more clearly than everyone in church ages previously to us. Now that tells us our redemption is nigh. It's time to look up. Jesus is coming soon. Somebody say amen. Would you all stand this morning? And Father, we are grateful, Lord, for your word. Thank you for giving us so many details for us to examine. Thank you, Lord, for so many smart people who have examined these things, studied the history, looked at the geography, uh, looked at genealogies, and given us so many wonderful insights. And Lord, while we may differ on our interpretations of this aspect or that, the fact is the bottom line is you have told these things to us so we can be ready when we see them happen. And Lord, we recognize that an unstoppable and irreversible sequence of events has begun since May 14, 1948. And they continue to unfold right before our eyes. And now we see the end game forming as well, at least of the Ezekiel War scenario. So Lord, help us to be more passionate about those who are lost and perishing around us. And help us, Lord, to be willing to step out and step up and tell other people that Jesus is coming and not be ashamed of the gospel in these last days. Again, we're thankful for our time in your matchless word. We give you glory in Jesus' name and all God's people said.